right. All right. Let's pray. Almighty God, uh, we are grateful and thankful for the family that you have here in this church, Lord, and we are grateful to you for the working you're doing here. Pray that you continue to provide for my brothers and sisters, help uh, us to grow in the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, help us to grow in love for each other, and um, help us to grow in service for you in this valley so people will see what's being done here, Lord, through you and um, by you. So be with my brother today as he preaches your word. Help us to hear your word preached and help us to receive it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you would please turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 14, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 31. John chapter 14, verses 28 through 31. This discourse, of course, is going to take us. Uh, the, uh, this discourse is going to take us through chapter seventeen. And here, when this discussion with Jesus and his disciples began, it was prompted really by a question that Peter raised: "Lord, why can I not follow you now?" And it was, of course, because Jesus is talking in this discourse about his departure. So Peter raises that question, and Jesus answers it. Well, that causes Philip to raise his own question. Philip asks, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus explains to Philip that, if you have seen me, Philip, if you've been with me all this time, and you've seen me uh, preach the word, and work miracles, and show mercy, you have seen the Father in the work that I am accomplishing. And of course, I miss Thomas. Thomas said, Lord, do we know, um, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So Jesus explains to Thomas, I'm going to the Father and what that means. And then lastly, Judas, not Iscariot, asks the Lord, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? And in essence, Jesus' answer is, I will come and reveal myself to you first and foremost, post-death, right? Or he, uh, after his death, in his resurrection, he will come, but then also he will come by virtue of the Spirit. And in these verses that we're going to read, he is continuing to, to offer the disciples comfort in light of his departure. So, verse 28, John 14, 28, hear the word of God. You have, you have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father is greater than I. And I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do arise. Let us go from here. So now Jesus closes this discussion and in my, in my reading and in the things I was listening to, one, one author pointed this out, that here at the end of this discussion, Jesus focuses on uh, three, three words, which is interesting, right? We've had now, what, ten words or something like that, eleven words 
this morning. But three words. Verse 27, uh, look at it with me. We saw this last week. Peace. As he is departing, uh, he will no longer be with his disciples. He's explaining to them clearly that he is leaving to go, uh, to, go to the Father. He wants to leave them with peace. But verse 28 focuses on joy or rejoicing. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice. So he wants to leave them not only with peace, but with joy and faith. Look at verse 29. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. In other words, you may have faith. Faith in what? Faith in the promises. And faith in a specific context. Faith in the midst of difficulty. Because the Lord is departing. So, peace, joy, and faith. And this morning we're going to look at this joy and this faith that Jesus says His disciples should come, that should have in light of His departure. So, look at the passage with me. Verse 28. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. And of course, this is very clear. That's exactly what he's been communicating this entire discourse. I'm leaving. I'm going to the Father. Well, if this was the case, look at what Jesus says. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Of course, there's a bit of a rebuke there. But Jesus doesn't mean that his disciples don't love him. That is not his point at all. Because there is, uh, there are different ways of loving God. So Jesus in the, in the Synoptic Gospels, and uh, particularly in Luke, he says this. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's Luke 10.27. And then there are other places, of course. Paul says in Romans 8.5 that we ought to fix our minds on the things of the Spirit. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, he says that we ought to set our minds on the things above. To love God with the mind with the mind, means that we must know and understand the God we love. We must, in light of that, we must also know who we are and how we are to live in this world. So when Jesus says to his disciples here, uh, you would have loved me, he means love me with a sense of understanding and knowledge about what I am going to, what I am accomplishing, and where I am going. Now, which truth in particular did they need to comprehend? What what truth would have shed light upon the disciples and given them joy and rejoicing? He tells us in this verse, verse twenty-eight. You would have, excuse me. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Why? Because I said I am going to the Father. That is why. The disciples, they should have been rejoicing. They they, they should not have been sad. They should have been uh, rejoicing with Christ. Because the purpose 
purpose of Christ coming into the world, of course, was to one of the purposes, die for our sins, but then he will rise again from the dead and ascend to be with his Father. Which means that he is victorious. He accomplished what God sent him into the world to accomplish. They will rejoice because Christ was going to the Father. Uh, and I love the way that Paul, look at Hebrews uh, 12. Uh, Paul puts it here. He gives us that cloud of witnesses. And I love what he calls those nameless, that nameless group of witnesses, men of whom the world was not worthy. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says that the way that we ought to live is looking unto Jesus. Uh, verse 2, 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher, the one who completed our faith. And what he means by that is the one who completed the work that was essential for us to believe. So the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, and there it is, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. In essence, that's what Jesus is conveying to his disciples. No, you should be rejoicing. Why? Because when I accomplish my work, I'm going to be seated at the right hand of God. Christ looks at that accomplishment, his resurrection, and he rejoices. And in light of his passion, the suffering that he's going to go through, associated with it. Why, why, why would he have to despise the shame? Because shame keeps us from doing things we ought to do. I should say something to this guy. Oh man, but I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed to do it. But what Jesus does is he despises the shame. He has contempt for shame associated with his crucifixion. The shame of, of being uh, called a pretender and a false king, of being a liar and a deceiver, and to be working for the devil when he cast out demons and healed people. You know, we, 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 we tend to think that verbal abuse is not a significant trial, but it really is. In many, in many of his interactions with the Pharisees, that is their weapon of choice, their tongue. God is our father. We don't know who your father is. You illegitimate bastard. That, that was the implication. But he despised all of it. He didn't care. I, I will suffer with great, with great joy because at the end of this suffering is my coronation. That is why he can suffer this way because of the joy that was set before him. And his disciples, right? What, what ought we to do with those who are rejoicing? We rejoice with them. Well, they should have walked with him in the garden also because of the great sufferings that he would endure. But they were also simultaneously, there should have been this rejoicing because Christ will receive the reward for his sufferings. Therefore, uh, we must love God this way. We must love God with a mind and with a, with, a, with a full understanding. And we must rejoice when we consider the cross. 
Because our Savior accomplished what his Father sent him in the world to accomplish. Look at John 17, 14. John, uh, excuse me, John 17, 4. John 17, 4 through 5. Christ now, he's praying for himself. He's speaking to the Father, and look at what he says. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He's not been crucified yet. But he is so set, as it says in the uh, Synoptic Gospels, that he set his face towards Jerusalem as a flint, which means he would not be deterred. He's going to Jerusalem to die. And, and nobody could keep him from dying. So he speaks as if his work is completed because he will definitely complete the work. So he says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And you, oh Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Was born of a virgin, right? He was, he was conceived in, in her womb, and she produced this pure and undefiled seed. That man had a glory before his earthly existence, and that glory was the glory of God. And that is what he is returning to. No longer is Jesus' glory veiled in flesh. Right? We sing the song, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See. That's what, we would have, that's what we would have seen when he was on earth. But what we will see is what John saw in Revelation. And he was terrified. That is a glory that Christ is going to. And that ought to have caused his disciples to rejoice. But they didn't know. They needed that information. And this is one of the things, of course, that when he, he says that the Spirit's going to come and bring to remembrance all things that I've said to you, the, this is one of the truths he is talking about. So, they should have rejoiced with him. There should have been great joy. Because he is going to the Father. And then he makes this statement. I'm going to the Father. And how does he do it, though? He goes to the Father by way of sacrificial substitution. So it's not pretty, right? He's not taking an Uber. He's not jumping on a path train. He's not taking a camel. He's not walking. The road to the, to the crown is the cross. And he must be crucified. So he is going to the Father. And then he makes this statement, which I'm certain has tripped everybody up in this room. My Father is greater than I. What? Jesus was God. Why does he say things like this? <laughs> and this? And this is where theology is important. Remember, uh, yes, he is focusing on specific truth that we must know about him in John chapter 14 when he says, if you would have loved, if, if you loved me. He's focusing on a specific truth that he's going to the Father, but it's an expansive truth that we must know our God. And the Bible speaks about God, uh, and this is a theological language, so uh, bear with me. But we can refer to the Trinity 
ontologically or economically. And when we're talking about ontology, we're talking about the study of, of being. And a really complicated way that theologians put it is God as he is in himself apart from creation. So that's one way about speaking of the Trinity. R.C. Sproul explains it, and then the economic trinity particularly has to do with the revelation of God in light of creation and redemption. So, ontological, as he is in himself, economic, in light of creation and redemption. And R.C. Sproul, he writes this, very helpful, very simple, succinct. He says this, In the trinity, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who together are one being. The ontological structure of the Trinity is a unity. So when we think about God and the being of God, we think Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When we speak of the economic Trinity, on the other hand, we are dealing with the activity of God and the roles of the three persons with regard to creation and redemption. Now he's going to elaborate uh, uh, with regards to the economic trinity. And that is Jesus' language about the Father being greater than him falls under this uh, way of explaining the trinity, under, this, uh, under the economic trinity. And now Sproul elaborates. He says this, It is the Father who sends the Son into the world for our redemption. Right? The Son doesn't send the Father. The, the, the Father. And I've heard Christian people pray this way. They say, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for dying for our sins. And uh, it's well-meaning, but he didn't. He sent his Son into the world to die for your sins. So it is the Father who sends the Son into the world for our redemption. It is the Son who acquires our redemption for us. It is the Spirit who applies that redemption to us. We do not have three gods. We have one God and three persons. And the three persons are distinguished in the, ec in the economy of redemption in terms of what they do. And in light of what they do, Jesus can make the statement that the Father is greater than I because in the economy of salvation, it is the Father who sends the Son. That's why he says that. And in sending the Son, what is he doing? He's giving him a mission. And when Jesus returns to his Father, he's completed the mission. He receives the glory he had before the world began. So Jesus is saying, if you knew this, you would have rejoiced. Because I am accomplishing the Father's purposes in the world. And I'm being crowned with righteousness. One aspect of this that is really important to consider is what Paul says in Colossians when he says that he is the firstborn over creation and he is the firstborn out of the dead or from the dead ones because Christ now reigns as king over creation and redemption as a resurrected man, which is amazing. So, so that is what he wants the disciples to know. So he says to them in John 10, excuse me, John 14, chapter 28, he says to his disciples, you have heard me say to you, I'm going away 
and coming back to you, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I said, I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Love me with your mind and understand that I am leaving not because I am abandoning you, but because I have completed my task upon the earth. Now, verses 29 and following, he focuses upon their faith, and particularly their faith in hard times, as Christ is going to depart. Verse 29, And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. What, does he, what is he doing? He is, he is cultivating confidence in his promises. That's what he's doing. I'm telling you this now, guys, so that later, when, uh, when I show up in the upper room, you won't think to yourself, what's going on here? You'll know, oh, he promised he would come. And then when he sends his spirit, oh yes, he promised he would send the spirit. And what that, would, that will do for the disciples is it will build confidence in his promises. I remember one of the one, one of the part-time jobs that and if you lived in Florida you've probably had this part-time job too. One of the part-time jobs that I had was was uh in Joby actually did this too. We were talking about this when he was here last night. I sold that like for a day. Less than a day. It must have been like 2 hours. This telemarketing thing where you sell knives. Anybody here? You cut pennies with the with, with the scissors, right? confidence in this product. So I couldn't talk to people about it, you know? And they did this huge demonstration and I thought to myself, I'm leaving. <laughs> so I just left. Um, but uh, when, when you have confidence in something, it, it's easy for you to, to commend it to other people. Right? So if you've purchased, and, and of course, this is, uh, I'm making an illustration or making a connection here between the lesser and the greater. So you buy a good vehicle, or maybe you use a good realtor, or a good lawyer, or whatever it is, you, don't, you do not have a problem commending that person, or that product, or the message to other people. It's it just, you naturally do it. And that is exactly what Jesus wanted the disciples to do. He wanted them to have confidence in the things that he had told them, and in the promises that he had made. And not just only, and, and now, as he does that, then the disciples can have promises in, uh, excuse me, confidence in all of the word, because the promises that Christ gives to them are connected with all of the others. So Christ here is commending us to trust the scriptures. Confidence in his promises. And I think, you know, why, why would John record this? Or why would the Spirit inspire John to record this? So that we can have confidence in the promise. It's for our benefit that the scriptures is written. He didn't, he didn't write this primarily for Peter. Peter was, I think, dead when he wrote this gospel. And then he says, no longer will I talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. My time is running out. Judas is gone and he's going to go get um, some guards to arrest me. Time is short. So Jesus is compacting all of the things that are essential for the disciples to know so that they can have confidence in him, so that, in other words, so that they can believe and so they can have peace and joy in this world. 
And that's what he wants for us. I no longer will talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. And you think about it, right? It's, it's Judas who's coming first. And then the guards and Pilate and the Jewish officials and the devil is manipulating and using all of these men to accomplish his sinful purposes in this world. But what is amazing, I love the way that Owen, uh, John Owen describes what Jesus is explaining here. He wrote a book on the death of Christ. The title of the book is The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And that's what Jesus is explaining here. When he says, For the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Well, what's the ruler of this world coming to do? To accomplish his sinful purposes. And he believes, and we, uh, I heard a pastor say this, I thought it was helpful. He said, we give the devil too much credit sometimes. Sometimes we don't give him enough. But sometimes we give him too much credit. And we, we, we think that he knows more than he does. He is not omniscient, and he is not a sovereign being. He's, he's a deceptive and cunning being, because he's been alive so long, and he's so wicked and perverse. But he is not omniscient. And he did not know that in, in the death of the Son of God, that's what he wanted to accomplish, I will kill this seed. In the death of the Son of God, death died. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. So in Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, Inasmuch as the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things that he might destroy the one who had the power of death. That's why he becomes a man. Christ, when he descends, he is waging war. The, the, the conception of the Son of God and his sinless life and his crucifixion is a war. It's a battle and he is destroying the power of Satan. So the fact that there is a church in the world today is evidence that the Son of God has destroyed the power of Satan. And then right after his resurrection, what does he say to his disciple? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's in my hand. There is no place on the planet where men can live and disobey Christ without having to, to suffer the penalty of disobedience. Christ is king. He says he has nothing in me. Satan has no claim upon Christ because Christ has no sin in himself. Uh, there's no sin in Christ, therefore he's not subject to the devil's dominion. The devil has no power, no authority over the Son of God because the Son of God is sinlessly perfect. Our Savior is a spotless lamb, therefore the devil has no power over him. So in other words, he's, he's saying to his disciples, do not fear. I'm not going to talk to you much. I have a very short time. The devil is coming. He's going to accomplish his wicked task. But he will also be accomplishing the will of my Father. And then verse 31. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do.
It's an interesting way to put this, but, but you can think about this verse in, in, in this particular way. So, if let's say we were having a discussion and, and Jesus was, was talking to us, and he said to us, <clears throat> And I told you before it comes, that when it comes to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you much, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. And we were to say to Jesus, well, then why don't you leave? Why don't we escape? Let's go somewhere. Since the ruler of this world is coming, we'll leave. Since he has nothing in you, there's, he has no authority over you. Let's, let's just flee. And, then we don't, and we don't have to worry about this battle with the ruler of this world, whatever that might be. And Jesus would say, no. I, I couldn't do that. Because... The world must know that I love my Father. They must see my obedience to Him worked out in my death. In other words, that is, so as an aside, our love for God is displayed by our obedience to the commands that are the most difficult. This was the most difficult for the Son. He's going to be in the garden weeping and uh, uh, sweating drops of blood within a few hours of this discussion. And he says, the, the world must know that I love my father. There's no way that I could run. And as the father gave me commandment, so I do. This is what the father sent me into the world to do. He sent me into the world to die for my people. And I will do it with joy. In John 10, 17 through 18, he, he said these words. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. No one. Right? So we can speak that way, right? The activity of the devil and his in Judas and Judas wanting to accomplish his own sinful will and Pilate being a coward and the religious leaders being uh, um, apostates. We can talk that way. The Bible talks that way. But ultimately, it was the Son of God offering his own life for his people as a display of his love for them and as a display of his love for his Father. And and this is this is a uh, magnificently uh, speculative if if Jesus would have said when Judas showed up with those guards, no, there would have been no crucifixion. When Peter takes out his sword and slashes his Malcolm's ear, I think that's what his name, Malchus, Malchus's ear. The high priest's uh, assistant, or yeah, the high priest's assistant. What does Jesus say? Put that sword away. They've got much more. They've got more swords than we do, and we can't fight with them. He said, "Put that stupid thing away." If I wanted to, I could have about a thousand angels here within a second. That's that's not why I came. I came to die, so that He could redeem us and display His love for His Father to the world. When unbelievers hear about the death of Christ, one of the things that they're hearing, I mean, they're not going to make the connection, 
But what they're hearing is about the love of a son for his father. And about that same son's love for his bride. I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. And when, when I was preparing this, what I thought was what Luther said in A Mighty Fortress, Lo, his doom is sure. When Jesus said these words to his disciples and he says to them, Arise, let us go from here. In essence, he was saying, the work of the devil is now destroyed. And what he left to his disciples in this world was peace, joy, and faith. And that's what we partake in. The greatest peace that you can have, we have it with God. The greatest joy that you can experience, we have it in Christ. And the greatest object of faith is ours freely. We should rejoice greatly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing and a privilege it is to gather together with your people and to consider the work of our Savior. We ask, Lord God, that you would forgive us when we lack peace in this world knowing that you died to give it to us so freely. Forgive us, Lord, and help us we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us when we lack joy and when, when we do not rejoice, even in difficulties. Help us, Lord God, to be a joyful people. The men and women who set their minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated in heavenly places. And please, Lord God, increase our faith individually and corporately. Help us, Lord, to trust in you more than in men. And may it be evident, Lord God, to the men and women in this valley. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand and let's sing the doxology.